1: Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I am your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Nursing and Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center my guest today is Dr. Stuart Haynes, who is professor of pharmacy practice at UMMC as well. And, you know, Heart Month is right around the corner with February. And so we want to talk about one of the biggest drivers of heart disease, which is our blood pressure. And so thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Haynes. Yeah,
2: pleasure to be here.
1: And I know that all of our listeners out there probably have questions about high blood pressure or know somebody who has high blood pressure. And that's what we want to talk about and cover today. Today, day uh, so our number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, and our email is fit at mpbonline.org and you can get us either way but we would love to talk with you uh, on the air today and answer those questions and first i just want to start off with uh, tell me what you do at umc because we have not run into each other before it's a big place um what what are you
2: doing over there Sure. So uh, at the University of Mississippi, I work for the School of Pharmacy and uh, wear many hats, actually, during the (laughs) course of a day, uh, do a little bit of teaching to our doctor of pharmacy students uh, who will go off and either practice uh, in the state of Mississippi or beyond, because we do have students who come from other areas of the country that come to learn from us. Uh, Part of my day is filled with the scholarly activities where we do some research. Uh, We try to summarize what's happening in the literature uh, for professionals so they have a better understanding of how to best take care of patients. And we appreciate that. And uh, kind of the last area that I work with, particularly in my role, I'm the director of professional development. So um, I work with practitioners to help elevate their practice around the state.
1: Which are all such needed things. And, you know, as a healthcare provider, Having a pharmacy partner that can be there to answer those questions when when it gets a little tricky, you know, there are uh, of course standard protocols for how we manage blood pressure and, and diabetes and heart failure and all those kinds of things, but patients sometimes don't fit the mold. Sure. Uh, you know, they just don't fit exactly uh, with that recipe that, that's been laid out for us. And so having a pharmacist who can really help you get into the the knit and gritty part of, of how you manage some of these conditions is just an invaluable uh, member of the healthcare team, which is what's so great about about an academic medical center and the partnership that we have with the with Ole Miss School of Pharmacy.
2: Absolutely. Uh, so we're
1: we're very grateful for that. Um, and I tell my nursing students, your best friend on the clinical unit will be your clinical pharmacist find them and make friends with them bring them breakfast or coffee or whatever it is (laughs) that they like because they will help you so very very much Uh, getting back to what we really want to talk about today and that is blood pressure which that medical word is hypertension Mm -hmm. Um, and so you may hear that thrown out um, a little Sometimes I try not to use it as much uh, because sometimes people don't know what it means. Uh, we were talking before the show about uh, one of our kind of mutual colleagues that we've worked with and th- the former host of this show, um, Debbie Miner. She likes to tell a story about a lady who she, um, the, the lady thought hypertension meant uh, really, really stressed out, like hyper- intense. And <laughs> so you've got to be careful of those medical words, but sometimes it'll, it'll sneak out of my mouth and I'll say hypertension uh, as well. But that's what we're talking about is, is high blood pressure. But Dr. Haynes, what is high blood pressure?
2: Yeah, so high blood pressure is, is uh, an elevation in one's blood pressure. And the blood pressure is the amount of pressure that's actually in your arteries throughout your body. Um, and there's a healthy amount of pressure in there. We need that to... Be able to deliver that oxygen and that blood throughout our bodies and then there's an amount of pressure that's really too much and it starts to do damage to our organs. And that's damage to all the organs throughout the body. Uh, the ones that are most affected by elevated blood pressure are the brain, the kidneys, the heart. Um, even the eyes mm-hmm. can be affected by this. And so um, we want to keep the blood pressure in a kind of an optimal range. Uh, what's considered optimal is actually less than 110. That top number, which is the systolic blood pressure, that's the highest pressure the blood vessels go through when the blood uh, the heart pumps and the blood pressure goes up and then there's a diastolic pressure which is the low end that low pressure and that's the resting pressure within the Mm -hmm. vessel so what happens is our blood pressure uh, oscillates back and forth between that higher pressure and that lower pressure so between the systolic and the diastolic and so that diastolic that resting one ideally should be less than 70. Most of us are not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and as we get older, it tends to elevate from there. Uh, what's considered to be too high and starting to cause some damage is the top number being above 130 and the bottom number being above 80. So anything above 130, over 80 is considered to be less than ideal, not optimal, uh, can lead to damage. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I love how you mentioned the, the resting of the heart because a lot of times I think people think our heart just works. It's just working all the time. But there is that very, very important little rest phase that it has. And when our pressure is too high in that resting phase, our heart is not really getting to rest. It's still working. The way um, I usually explain it, I do a lot of teaching to high school kids, and uh, they're usually pretty physically active, and they do uh, you know push-ups and wall sits Mm -hmm. and all that kind of good stuff. And I'll say, okay, who's ever done a wall sit? And they raise their hand, and I say, okay, is that something that you would want to do forever? Would you want to sit on that wall forever? (laughs) And they're like, no, that would be terrible. And I said, well, you know, when our heart is not able to rest, when that pressure is too high in there, that's really what we're asking our heart to do is kind of stay in a wall sit for the rest of its life. And, you know, if you were able to sit in a wall sit, your muscles would get bigger. But a big heart muscle is not a better heart muscle tell me tell me what happens when our heart muscle gets overworked
2: yeah so it it enlarges just like any muscle in the body does because it has to push harder to get to even the overcome the pressure in the vessels and of course even in the resting state it's it's working harder there's a lot more pressure against it so the muscle gets enlarged Um, it can only enlarge so much before the the uh, interior cavities of that heart muscle start to get smaller and that's not good because Mm -hmm is we want to be able to pump out as much blood with each contraction of our heart, with each pumping of the heart as, as possible. And so when it's overworked, that muscle gets larger and it, it not only expands out, but it expands into those cavities that are in the heart, what called the heart chambers. Mm-hmm. And, and that means there's less blood to be able to pump. So it uh, makes our hearts less efficient. Then it also causes damage to the muscle of the heart over time. And that can lead to things like arrhythmias. The, the heart doesn't contract normally a nice, regular rhythm. It doesn't to follow the, ex- the rules. No, it doesn't follow the rules. It also makes it... Uh, since there's more muscle, the blood supply to it can get impacted, and that can lead to heart attacks. Um, so, there's lots of things that can damage the heart from having to work too hard over a long period of time. Right. And that's just the heart. And we've got other organs in the body that are adversely affected by high blood pressure, and that the brain strokes. 90% of them are related in some way to blood pressure. Blood pressure. And then kidneys, um, a very important organ. Uh, we got to get rid of our waste products throughout the day. And if they don't function properly, then we can't get rid of waste. And so that's another common cause of failed kidneys or kidney failure is high blood pressure so all of these things are related to each other and unfortunately most people don't sense that this is going on it's kind of a what we call the silent Silent killer killer, yes silent killer and so they can't really uh, feel that their blood pressure is elevated
1: now some folks you know when you get dangerously high pressures you may see some some symptoms with that sure chest especially if you're having a cardiac event, chest pain, you may get headaches, you may um, get some shortness of breath. But by and large, folks that are just running a moderately elevated blood pressure that is doing damage to those, we call them, you know, end organs, meaning the the end of the line for the blood flow getting to them. um, They really just don't have a lot of symptoms, which is also one of the reasons that people may not take their medication because they don't they don't feel bad when sure. you've got a moderately elevated blood pressure. You actually feel, feel normal. Uh, and sometimes the medicine may make you not feel as great. And we're going to talk about ways we can deal with that in just a minute. But we do have open lines. And we know you guys out there listening have got to have questions about blood pressure. And we would love to talk with you. You can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring now, we were talking about all the different organ systems that can be affected by that, and you mentioned kidneys, and so kidneys, tell me tell me why the kidneys get affected by high blood pressure.
2: Well, all of your blood gets filtered through the kidneys, um, and there's very small blood vessels in your kidneys uh, that filters all of this and gets rid of the waste. The excess pressure on those literally does damage to those vessels and those little, they're called glomeruli. those little um, filtering systems that are in our kidneys get damaged over time and so they don't filter as they should. And therefore, wastes are not getting into the urine the way they should be as well as fluids. We need to get fluids in there. And so that excess pressure really does damage to those little tiny um, vessels that are inside the kidney that take care of all that filtering. Um,
1: And the flip of that is, you know, the the blood pressure, the high blood pressure does damage to the kidneys. And then the kidney damage makes it that much harder to control the blood pressure. Because you're not able to get rid of all the fluid that you need to get rid of to decrease your blood volume, to decrease your blood pressure. Um, So really prevention is going to be the key on that and trying to preserve as much kidney function as we can to be able to have the best outcomes um, on that blood pressure. And so you mentioned that optimal blood pressure was uh, less than 110 on the top, less than 70 on the bottom. And Probably some folks have heard uh, the new guidelines that care that they are new guidelines out there, but they may not know what they are, what they mean, or why we got new ones. Like what we what was wrong with the old ones right. um, beforehand, uh, and these just got released right at the end of the year um, yes, in, in, in twenty yeah November in twenty seventeen. So relatively new, um, and you may so you may have seen it on social media, and lots of folks have shared it on uh, Facebook. It's come across the A- the American Heart Association Facebook page and Twitter and all those kinds of things. But why did we need new guidelines?
2: Yeah, so we need updated guidelines every once in a while because there's new evidence, there's new research. Uh, Really, these guidelines have been around since the early 1970s, um, Then they've been updated approximately every four to five years since that time. So we're on essentially the ninth iteration Mm -hmm. of these guidelines over time. They were previously published by the government through the National Institutes of Health, uh, but more recently that's been turned over to professional organizations to basically update these on a on a regular basis through a consensus of national uh, medical pharmacy, nursing, physical therapy, uh, multidisciplinary uh, team, absolutely. So the these groups of individuals from different professions come together and look at the evidence that's accumulated since the last time the guidelines were updated and say, what do we need to do differently? And I think the biggest things that happened in this iteration of the updated guidelines was. Um, Being a little bit more aggressive in terms of blood pressure control, um, setting a threshold for calling something high blood pressure is anything above 130 on the top number and 80 on the bottom, bottom number. Um, That doesn't mean that everyone needs to be on medications when they're above 130 over 80, but it does mean it's high enough that it's causing damage and we need to take action. And for many people who are at low risk for heart disease or relatively young and they don't have any other health problems. Taking action means lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. They need, need to get their blood pressure down. And fortunately, there are plenty of lifestyle behaviors that we can adopt that can really reduce our blood pressure significantly. Yeah. Um,
1: and, and we're going to talk about some of those uh, as we get a little farther into the show. We're going to talk about sodium because that's a, a big hot uh, hot tic- ticket item out there um, about high blood pressure. And we'll talk about some of the other ways we can increase an, another uh, type of nutrient that will also help uh, with blood pressure out there we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to talk about some of those things and we're going to talk about some treatment guidelines if you have other medical conditions going on as well as high blood pressure and if you want to join in our conversation our number one eight seven seven mpb ring and our email is fit at mpbonline.org we'll be back after the break This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, and joining me in the studio today is Dr. Stuart Hay who is a professor of pharmaceutical practice, and we are talking about high blood pressure today and what those numbers mean and what optimal control is going to be for uh, for you and why we really want you to achieve that optimal range when at all possible. And our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can always send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org. Um, before we went on the break, we were talking about uh, the blood pressure's impact on kidney function uh, overall and how we can work on those numbers to, to get that uh, prevent that from happening. But I do have a caller who's been on hold for a couple of minutes, so I want to go ahead and talk to Frank and Jackson. Good morning, Frank.
3: Yes, good morning. Um, I just really love the, uh, the service that is being rendered by Mississippi Public Radio. All of these are locally produced programs. It's just outstanding. And I do a lot of driving. Well, I used to do a lot of driving. And there's nothing else in the country that can match what we do here in Mississippi.
1: Oh, well, thank you for that. And thank you for listening.
3: Yeah, I have two things. I have a little story. Okay. About the um, healthcare care team and then a question about AFib.
1: Okay. Lay them on me.
3: Okay. Okay. Uh, I've been taking um, chemo and blood thinners and steroids for 10 years. Okay and uh i had a very strange uh sore on my finger that was kind of greenish blue so my doctor my my oncologist prescribed a antibiotic so my wife went to get the antibiotic and the pharmacist told her well we know frank is taking a blood thinner you have to be careful using this antibiotic with a blood thinner so she comes back home and she says kind of offhandedly to me Uh, Well, you know, pharmacist said you need to be careful with the antibiotic plus the blood thinner. So I immediately called my oncologist, and I wrangled his cell phone number out of him many years (laughs) ago, and he immediately apologized. He said, Frank, the pharmacist was absolutely right, so he adjusted the dosage of both the blood thinner and the antibiotic to account for that. And every time I see him, he apologizes for that. So that shows how a healthcare team can work together. Absolutely. And if you go to a pharmacy, make friends with the pharmacist. Whoever's, you know, just say, how you doing? So you know each other by name. So this particular pharmacist knew my situation and the, and the drugs I was taking. Yeah. So that, that really shows you really need to be very personal with your healthcare people.
2: Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that story. Frank, I I appreciate the fact that you realize that uh, pharmacists can have a very significant impact on things. And hopefully you do have a close relationship, all those listeners out there, with pharmacists. If you have take more than one medication a day, that you really have someone that you can turn to to ask questions, but also to double-check things because we all can't know everything, and that's for sure.
1: And especially when we've been seeing folks for Years and years and years, you know. Sometimes something may slip through, and it, that's the purpose of the healthcare team: is that there are multiple folks looking at a patient's history, their record, their medications that they're on, and really, you know, working together to take the best care uh, possible. Because you're absolutely right; there is an interaction with antibiotics and and blood thinners um, that can make your blood a little bit too. Then, uh, and so you do need to adjust those. So that is a great story, and I, I encourage folks as well to get to know their pharmacists. Um, and then you know, pay attention when you're you know signing your little form. Usually, the first thing that pops up says, "Do you want to talk to the pharmacist today?" And most folks hit no and and sign you know just sign on the line and keep going. But if it's a, a new medicine for you, go ahead and just get the pharmacist to come over and give you a little little rundown of what to expect from this medication. Yeah,
2: I think that's a good habit. Yeah, actually, a, yeah. any patient that's getting a new medication is to one hear some instruction where whoever the prescriber is, but then get some reinforcement mm-hmm. on that when they go in to pick up the medication itself and have their by that time they usually have questions that are formulated in their head as well about the medication and what to expect. And so it's good to hear from two different people about what the expectations right. are, how to take it properly. Especially and if they Googled
1: do. it. Yes. <laughs> it's going to freak them out, most yeah. of the side effects. All right, Frank, did you have a question as well?
3: Uh, yes. Um, about AFib, about two months ago, I had an episode of uh, shivers and sweating and loss of um, muscular uh, control and just pounding in my head. And my wife thought it was a flu.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So she called the emergency, uh, the ambulance people. I'm good friends with them, too. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they said, no, you're having a, uh, your heart is racing. And the skill of these people in these ambulances amazes me each and every time. They have a way of honing in on what's going on. And uh, my heart rate like 220.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, so they wanted to give me something to slow it down. And I have a, a port, and they weren't—they hadn't been checked out yet you on know, how to uh, right. insert the, the drug into a port. Mm-hmm. You know, they were relatively new, so only two years' experience. They relatively new, not much. I mean, that, that shows how much they have to learn. So they didn't give it to me in the ambulance, so they took me to the emergency room, and they administered uh, what it took to slow down my heart. Mm-hmm. Well, then my um, cardiologist told me I needed to take a calcium blocker, For the rest of my life. And I'd like someone to tell me why one episode of a racing heart would mandate that a drug be taken for the rest of a person's life.
2: Well, um, a couple of things. One, uh, because our show is about high blood pressure and atrial fibrillation, which is an abnormal rhythm of the heart uh, where the top part of the heart, the atria of the heart, just are not regulated properly. And so they can end up with a speeding heart like you experienced where you have a very rapid heart rate. Um, And to slow that heart rate down, we do sometimes use medications, often use medications. Um, Sometimes there are kind of surgical procedures where they um, try to uh, induce a control of the heart by what it's called ablation of the pathways that send signals through the heart to con, um, cause uh, contractions of the lower part of the heart. In any case, those are the two major ways that, that it's controlled. Um, not knowing your case well enough, uh, many patients do have to take it for the rest of their lives uh, if they're on medication, simply because the cause of that abnormal heart rhythm hasn't gone away. The medication's all they do is they don't cure the problem, they slow the heart rate so that you don't have symptoms related to that, and uh, it doesn't revert back to normal rhythm in many cases. Um, so that's why many patients have to take it for the rest of their lives. Um, that's not all patients uh, it does need to be reevaluated at a regular interval, so I'm not suggesting that all patients have to take it for the rest of their lives, but many do.
3: and you know the danger oh, and steroids and everything else may be that. Not- has something
2: to do with it? Yeah, I mean, there are some patients who have atrial fibrillation that are caused by a precipitating factor. Uh, Some people it's because of a thyroid condition, for example, or alcohol ingestion can sometimes do it. Um, Other chemicals, uh, recreational drugs, I mean, there are lots of things that can trigger it. And if those can be removed or changed, then often they won't have atrial fibrillation or AFib for the rest of their lives. But the majority of patients, actually, we can't remove. There's no precipitating factor. It's just structural damage. It's damage to the heart caused by often high blood pressure over a long period of time. And that damage hasn't been removed. Um, And it can't be removed. We don't have any way of removing it. And therefore, we have to use medications to kind of control the heart rate. Okay. Well, I've
3: heard it from two experts. I guess I need to be quiet.
1: Thank oh, you. you're good. You're good. Thank you so much for giving us a call, Frank. And uh, I just want to piggyback on that and what what AFib is. So you mentioned, you know, the top chambers are the heart or the atria. Um, and they're really just kind of... Quivering almost, and normal blood flow is going to move through the different chambers of the heart so that it can then be squirted out to the body. That's right. Um, and any time that blood stagnates or stays in an area for too long, it in- increases the risk of it of it kind of congealing and making a clot. And so that's one of the things that we worry about with AFib is you know the the atria just kind of quivering and the blood is staying in there and it may thicken up, uh, it may get some clots and then eventually you're going to have a full conduction through the heart and that blood is going to move into the ventricles and move on out into the body and you don't want to be shooting out these little clots because they're going to lodge somewhere, uh, either you know the brain and have a stroke. Uh, You know something like that. So blood thinning is a a part of of atrial fibrillation, which I know Frank said he's already on a blood thinner. So we want to keep the blood as thin as we can keep it safely so that uh, it decreases the risk of a clot. But we also want to decrease that quivering that's sitting there that is setting up the ideal chance of developing a clot. And that's what things like calcium channel blockers, beta blockers do is they're rate controllers. They're slowing that rate down and allowing the heart to kind of pump the way it's supposed to pump and not quiver like that. So uh, it's a good combination of those two things uh, to, to get um, the best possible outcome in a patient that has atrial fibrillation from that. So that was an excellent call. And we uh, would love to have some more of those calls. Our number is one ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 877 672 And um, before we talked with Frank, we were talking about the different, um, the new guidelines and um, really the, one of the, the more apparent changes that you may see is the elimination of the pre-hypertension category. So, you know, we used to say folks either had a normal blood pressure, they were pre-hypertensive, or they had hypertension and we were really targeting those folks that were in that pre-hypertension phase trying to get their pressure back down into that optimal range to prevent the development of hypertension or high blood pressure Um, but that category has kind of gone away and everything else has kind of shifted down so you know we used to say optimal 120 over 80 Um, if we were in that 130 range we were pre-hypertension and then when we were 140 uh, we were hypertension but everything's kind of moved down talk to me about that
2: Yeah, I think that is part of the new evidence that was explored in this new iteration, this new version of the guidelines really looked at what happens to people when their blood pressure is 130 over 80 or 130 over 90, and it it clearly shows that people are doing damage to their heart, to their brain, to their kidneys over time, even with blood pressures that we used to consider to be just pre-hypertension, and that's why the new cut points were set now. That does not mean that everyone with a blood pressure over 130, over 80 should be taking medications. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there are lots of lifestyle changes that can be adopted that will make a big difference in in blood pressure. So I don't think we're um, encouraging more use of medications, although that may, for some people, require a little bit more medication to get them to that less than 130, over 80 goal. So over 130, over 80 you're considered to now have high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Um, And our goal is to get it less than that 130 over 80 in most patients.
1: Right. And so I had several questions that came through um, on my Facebook yesterday and today uh, about this. And one of them was high blood pressure in people who also have diabetes is that, you know, when we have someone who has diabetes, it does increase their risk of, of other cardiovascular events, maybe having a heart attack or a stroke. So. Is the blood pressure guideline different for somebody that has diabetes?
2: No. And anyone with other conditions that predispose them to having damage to their heart or their brain or their kidneys, such as people with pre existing kidney disease, people with pre existing heart disease, people with diabetes, the goal for all of them is less than 130 over 80. Now, for people with diabetes, if they're relatively young and they have no other Uh, organ damage, they don't have any heart problems, they've never had a stroke, their kidneys are in pretty good function, then we may not need to use medications to get them to less than 130 over 80. However, uh, many patients with diabetes, they're generally recommended to take blood pressure medications, particularly those that have a protective effect on the kidneys. And so we often see people with diabetes needing to take medications to control their blood pressure, but also to provide a measure of protection against particularly their kidneys, which people with diabetes um, are very prone to having kidney damage, not only from the diabetes itself. So you've got a double whammy. You've got the diabetes causing damage to the kidneys because of the elevated blood glucose. And then the elevated blood pressure also causes damage to the kidney. So between the two, they're very high risk for having kidney damage over time. And so we want to get the blood glucose down and we get the blood pressure down. And usually that requires medications. But I don't want to diminish lifestyle because because we could be on far less medications or no medications if we can achieve it without medications. Yeah, I
1: mean that that is the the perfect picture is that we're able to control these things with what we what we eat, how active we are, our stress level, our smoking. All of those things um, are so incredibly important for all cause mortality, not just necessarily from blood pressure issues, from diabetes issues, but looking at it from uh, cancer risk and you know stroke risk, heart attack risk. Lifestyle truly can impact all of those um, factors from that. But sometimes we may need medication initially because our numbers are just so they're just not there and we don't want to do damage while we're waiting on lifestyle to kick in and help Um, but as we get them down into a normal thing we can wean off of some of those medications absolutely all right we've got a question from norma in boonville good morning norma good morning
4: actually i have more of a comment okay i'm 68 retired Um, I've never had any serious health problems, but my blood blood pressure was beginning to jump up just a little bit, say, a couple of years ago. And I also noticed that I had gained, oh, 11 to 13 pounds Mm -hmm. from my, optimum weight (laughs) I don't do any regular exercising and I do housework and yard work and that kind of thing and walking up and down the mall but not for exercise right or looking (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) that's fun though yes well I just want to encourage people about this weight loss business it's remarkable even if you aren't officially overweight how much just a loss of 8 or 10 or 12 pounds can affect blood pressure, Mm -hmm. and it certainly did in my case. Um, Also, I wanted to remind people that um, we often think that we are, quote, on a diet when what we're really doing is just eating a lot less than we normally do, which is still way too much, Mm -hmm. more than our body needs, It has amazed me how little portion size food my body actually needs Mm -hmm. to function, and it works every time. It does. It does so much. Just don't eat so much, and after about the second day, the hunger pains virtually go away.
1: Yeah. Well, you just Uh, gotta retrain, retrain your brain a little bit, and
4: retrain your stomach. it doesn't take as long mm-hmm. as, as one might think it does. Yep.
1: So I just wanted to share that bit of encouragement. Thanks so much for your show. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for that encouragement and for encouraging the listeners. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of those lifestyle factors uh, that can impact uh, your blood pressure and your weight overall. And if you want to give us a, a call and join in our conversation, our number is one mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 7464 Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. It's all about blood pressure today. My guest is Dr. Stuart Haynes, and we've been talking about blood pressure guidelines and why those numbers have changed and and how to get better control of our blood pressure, and we've gotten several um, comments uh, from listeners about diet and lifestyle in relation to blood pressure, which, you know, you are speaking my language when you're talking about lifestyle modifications, because that is one of my passions. And actually, one of the things I do every week uh, in Lifestyle Medicine Clinic is work on uh, lifestyle factors as as they relate to chronic uh, disease treatment and just prevention of those things in general. And, you know, our caller right before the break mentioned uh, just losing eight to 10 pounds. And really, when we look at the data out there 5 to 10 percent of total body weight when we can lose that we, we improve our metabolic profile overall so for you know a woman that weighs 160 pounds i mean you're right i mean you're talking 8 to 16 pounds of weight right there and you will have better outcomes overall and so um i call it kind of eating the elephant one bite at a time you know if you've got a considerable amount of weight that you're trying to lose set those really small goals like that like that five percent goal and achieve it and then set you a new goal Um, but that really sets you up for success a little bit more Uh, we had some comments that came in on uh, Facebook that were asking about salt and sodium and how that relates to blood pressure so tell me about the relationship between salt and blood pressure
2: sure so Salt or sodium, Uh, sodium chloride, which is table salt, uh, is used in cooking, obviously. But it's also used to enhance the flavor of lots of foods, particularly prepared foods. So it's ubiquitous. It's found in almost everything. Everything. If you look at the packaging of packaged foods, you'll see that it has a certain amount of sodium in it. Um, A healthy diet will have less than 2,000 milligrams of that in a day, ideally less than 1,500. 1,500. And unfortunately, most of us in America and actually in most developed countries eat closer to Mm 4000 milligrams of that twice twice of what we should be eating in a day. Mainly because of prepared foods. Most of us, I think, have gotten the message that adding salt to the table probably is not a healthy habit, Uh, but still we get most of our sodium from packaged goods, prepared foods. Um, So reducing the amount of sodium by buying foods and paying attention to what it says on the food label. Uh, I always tell people if it says more than 200 milligrams of sodium in it, it's kind of a high salt Mm -hmm. food and you probably ought to uh, try to select another option, whether that is a soup that's a low-sodium option and so on, and trying to eat more fresh fruits and vegetables which don't have a lot of sodium in them. The The other part of this equation is potassium. Potassium is a really good thing to have. We want to have more of that in diet. We don't get enough, typically, that comes from fresh fruits and vegetables, high fiber foods. Um, And so if we can get that ratio changed, if we don't eat enough potassium, we can boost that and reduce the amount of sodium, that can have as much as an eight to 10 point reduction in in our blood pressure. So just from that alone, paying attention to what we eat, reducing the amount of sodium and increasing the amount of potassium in our diet. Now there are some people who are taking medications that alter potassium as well. And so they can overdo it. Uh, We gotta be careful that but most dietary changes that increase the amount of potassium is actually going to be good for us yeah. in terms of lowering our blood pressure.
1: You know, potassium. Um, the way we get rid of excess potassium is we pee. You know, so um, you know if you have kidney issues or if you've you know if you've had kidney damage, we've got to. It's not just, I'm not telling you to go pick up a potassium supplement and start taking it no. without discussing that with your health care provider to make sure that you're able to eliminate potassium appropriately. Because high of a, a potassium makes your heart just stop. It makes it just not work like it's supposed to. Uh, so potassium is a great thing. Um but if you're going to take a supplement of any kind, you always want to talk with your health provider about that supplement to make sure that it's OK for your medical conditions and for your medications um, that it may interact with. That's right. Um, you know, lots so- of things do that. Tell me about those. Well,
2: I was going to say supplements in general. So whether you buy an over-the-counter product or an herbal medication or other things that you're going to consume each day, I think it's always wise to, if you're on medications prescribed or otherwise, to make sure that there's not going to be some sort of interaction Mm -hmm. with that, both with your health conditions as well as the other medications that you might be taking. I think we make assumptions that if something is a... um, quote, herbal product, or that it is uh, food in some way, that it it is necessarily healthy because it's natural. And there's Mm -hmm. plenty of natural things that are really dangerous for us to have. Just because it's natural doesn't mean it's necessarily healthy for us Mm -hmm. in our particular circumstances. Um, That's not to say that there aren't over-the-counter products and herbal products that uh, that work. They right. do. Um, there are some that really do. Um, but it, we do need to be careful. The manufacturing process is also something to pay attention to. Uh, they're not regulated in the same way that other medications are, uh, p- particularly prescription medications. And so I'm always cautious to tell people about, you know, we want to make sure that the manufacturer is a, a, a reputable one and is a trusty one and that uses the USP guidelines in terms of producing their their herbal products so that there's Standardization of the quality, and there aren't other ingredients in there that might be harmful. And what's
1: in there is actually in there. That That's it just right. Doesn't <laughs> say it's ginger, but there's no ginger in there, you know. Yeah.
2: And, and unfortunately, there's lots of cases mm-hmm. of that where unscrupulous manufacturers have produced things, labeled it, and it doesn't contain any of it, or 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 only a small amount right. of what it's not says. a therapeutic a, amount. Yeah,
1: because you know when we do have uh, scientific evidence that. Herbal preparations work It's at a certain Concentration That they work at And so you Just like you mentioned You want to look for that USP label On any of your supplements That you're buying It just is a little tiny little spot on the bottom of it that says USP verified. And that means that somebody has looked at the concentration of what's in that and it is is what it's supposed to be going on in there for that. But always, 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 always please tell your healthcare provider about any of those things. Don't think we're going to get mad at you if you're taking an over-the-counter supplement. We just need to know. Because just like the gentleman who was on blood thinners, there are, uh, you know, different Herbal supplements that can increase your bleeding times. And so we need to adjust your Coumadin dose if you're on that and or, or monitor your blood levels a little bit more frequently to make sure we're not having a problem with that. Now, are there over-the-counter things out there that can be not great for our blood pressure?
2: Well, from uh, so herbal products that contain ephedra, and most of them have been banned in the United States, but there's still that there are some out there. Also known as mahuang, uh, is one that is particularly problematic. Uh, not only can it cause arrhythmias in the heart, but it can also raise the blood pressure. Um, these are sometimes used in dietary, like uh, dietary loss. products, mm-hmm. weight loss products, because uh, it's a stimulant, and so uh, not only does it stimulate your body, but it also stimulates your blood vessels. <laughs> in your heart, and so that can be a problem. There are some uh, medications that are used for colds, which we caution people not to use them. It, it doesn't have a dramatic effect on blood pressure, but people whose blood pressure is not well controlled, it can make it a little bit worse, and so we caution against using them. So blood, um, if you're on blood pressure medications, it's always good to ask whether this particular cold medication would be okay to take. Uh, most of them are safe, though, um, and some of them actually label it as... For high blood for pressure, and so they alert consumers to the fact that they formulated in a way to be safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's always good to ask. Yeah, it,
1: usually things that say D on the end of them uh, have decongestant in it, that's right. which can make your blood pressure go up a little bit high. And if your blood pressure is well controlled, you know you can discuss that with your healthcare provider, and it may be okay to proceed with those. Correct. If your blood pressure is one of those that we're having a tough time getting a handle on, and you're already you know 160 over 100. Maybe we don't need that decongestant this go around, uh, or maybe we can do a nasal decongestant or something like that for some short term uh, relief of your of your stuffiness. Uh, but definitely a conversation that you want to have um, with uh, your healthcare provider. Um, so, folks should be checking their blood pressure. At Absolutely. home, right? Tell yep. me about that. We call it self-monitoring of self-monitoring. blood pressure. Self-monitoring.
2: So similar to what uh, folks do when they have diabetes and they're self-monitoring their blood glucose, we encourage everybody with high blood pressure, particularly if you use medications to get you to your goal, is to be aware of what your goal is, first of all, and second, to be an active participant in monitoring your blood pressure. There's lots of um, blood pressure monitoring equipment that's available for home use, You do want to pick a good machine, though. You don't want to pick one I recommend against, the finger ones, the wrist ones. Uh, That's what I was going to ask
1: because everybody says, can I use the wrist one?
2: Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And they're not as accurate. Uh, They may seem more convenient, but you're not going to get as accurate a measurement. And you really do want an accurate measurement because... We're going to use those numbers. You should be bringing those numbers. You should be logging them into a logbook. the time of day that the blood pressure was taken so we get a sense of when your blood pressure is the lowest and highest throughout the day. Um, I wouldn't be obsessive about it. I would measure it once a day if we're not actively changing your medications or making active changes. Once a day is certainly sufficient, but I would alternate the times of day. Uh, Morning is a good time to measure it, but a few times a week looking in the evening as well. And then recording that. bringing that log book to the physician's office, the nurse's office, the pharmacist's office, whoever is monitoring right. and managing your blood pressure needs to know those numbers because they make a difference in how we evaluate how well controlled you are. We now know that as we've known for a long time, that people's blood pressure one time when they come for a visit is not necessarily the full picture. And some people do get a little anxious when they come for a health visit and their blood pressure is unnaturally a little higher. Um, that says something about stress for that person, mm-hmm. by the way, that they t- whenever that they're they get that scared
1: some- of me, <laughs> well, that <laughs> or that in,
2: anxious that in stressful circumstances, mm-hmm. their blood pressure tends to elevate more than other people. So those right. that profile of person whose blood pressure elevates whenever they go for a doctor's visit or um, come in for a checkup. Uh, tells us a little bit about how they handle stress. Uh, Nonetheless, that home measurement gives a better picture long-term about how much damage is going on and how well-controlled their their blood pressure is. And so self-monitoring is really a key for us, and it's really important information. So if you're not being encouraged to monitor your blood pressure at home, put them in a logbook and bring them to visits, uh, you should bring it up. You should say, should I be doing self-monitoring mm-hmm. and should I be bringing my numbers with me and each time? And they're pretty
1: affordable. Um, you know, they're, depending on the brand, anywhere from about 35 to $45. Um, and it doesn't have to have lots of fancy bells and whistles. Uh, you just want, you know, one that Fits your arm is, is the, yes. the best thing. You don't want the cuff to be super too tight or really, really loose. You can order extra cuffs. You can order a bigger cuff um, that if you need that. Uh, most of them are adjustable down for a, a relatively smaller arm, but sometimes we may have to order a bigger cuff, but the pharmacist can help you with that as Absolutely. well. Uh, you know, If you go to any of your um, commercial pharmacies, that pharmacist will be happy to help you with that. Uh, and write them down and, and bring them. And I tell folks write down how you feel with it as well you know so if you're because i have a lot of folks tell me they feel bad when they start their medications so i want to see does that correlate to your blood pressure maybe being too low or is are we just now in the normal range and you we just got to work through it a little bit and it should get better mm-hmm. quickly i want to go uh to the phone lines we've got a caller and we just have a few minutes left so i want to go talk to uh diana and go good morning
0: Good morning. I missed the dietary supplement to avoid if you have high blood pressure. I miss the name of that. Okay.
2: Yeah, so it, it's ephedra is the, the the active ingredient, and sometimes it's called mahuang. Mahuang is what they might put on the label, but ephedra is the technical term of it.
0: Okay, I'm not taking that in though <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. it's usually an ingredient uh, an ingredient in a in a a weight loss supplement. It's one of many, and so you got to read the whole label. Uh, no one sells ephedra separately. It's just one of many ingredients that's sometimes put in there as a stimulant.
0: okay, my second uh, question was, who do I go to uh, about a month ago, I experienced a headache that like I never had before, okay monitoring I monitoring my blood pressure every day. The highest went like 165 over 70-something, but it goes up and down, up and down, and, and now it's like normally 114 over 70-something. Who do I go to if I don't have high blood pressure? Because I'm still getting headaches, not excruciating, but headaches.
1: Okay, What
0: doctor do I need
1: to go to? Just your good old general physician or nurse practitioner or physician assistant is going to be the best place to start. Um, Because they're going to do a a basic neurological exam and look at your eyes and your muscles and your strength and all that kind of good stuff and take a, a history of when the headache started, the characteristics of the headache, and decide what is the best treatment option from there. It may be that they got to get a picture of your head um, with a CT scan or MRI to look for anything in there. It may be that they say, oh, no, this is related to to this right here, and we can treat it with this medication. But the general uh, internist, family medicine, um, is going to be the best place to start with that instead of trying to find a specialist.
0: Can you comment on this? I've heard that when you get old, I'm 66 now, that you're going to have headaches. Uh, can you give a comment on that? I'm just going to hang up now.
1: All right. Not necessarily. Um... Actually, headaches that start later on in life, I'm a little bit more concerned concerned about. about them than headaches that, you know, started in young adulthood. You know, migraine syndromes usually start in young adulthood, you know, 20s, 30s, somewhere along in there. But new onset headaches for someone in their 50s and 60s definitely need to be evaluated to make sure that we don't have something going on in our brains that is putting pressure on an area or something else that's going on there.
2: Yeah. yeah. The only thing that was, and it relates back to high blood pressure, high blood pressure uncommonly cause headaches. Um, it can, uh, particularly if the blood pressure is very significantly elevated. Um, you mentioned earlier that, hey, as you get older, you get headaches. And I agree with you, Josie, that's not a common thing. And I get actually a little bit more worried, probably not related to high blood pressure in most cases. But I will say this, as we age, most of us will have high blood pressure. It, yeah. it is a product of aging. Um, And so something like 75 to 80 percent of people over the age of 70 have high blood pressure. And over the age of 50, over half of us Mm -hmm. have high blood pressure. So it's an extraordinarily common issue, partly because of our lifestyle. Um, We eat too much sodium. We don't eat enough fresh fruits and vegetables. Our weight for many of us could be a little bit better, and we don't participate in physical activity enough. So all of those things could make a difference. Yep.
1: So while we all, the majority of us may wind up with high blood pressure, we can delay the onset of that or decrease the severity of the of that as we age by watching what we eat and how active we are. So we have had a great show today, and I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Haynes, for being here with me and answering all these great questions about blood pressure. If you didn't get a chance to get your question in, you can email me at fit at mpbonline.org and remember to tune in every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. You've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio.
0: This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.